Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. We're glad you're here. Let's go to the book of Matthew. We're going to go Matthew, Matthew, Luke, Leviticus, Luke, Leviticus, and then maybe we'll hit up back in some Luke. So uh, get your fingers ready. Uh, I'm so glad you're with us. We are uh, looking at the idea of, of Jesus's antagonism to religion. And, and if you've been with us, you know this has been just an excuse to hold up the profound differences between the announcement, the radical announcement of grace and love that it was embodied in Jesus versus what it is usually called religion. We as human beings are incurably religious people. We will worship something. We can't help it. We're made to do that worship. Guys, worship isn't a religious thing. It's a human thing. We'll worship something. And the way our worship is most often expressed is in through pleasing, performing, deserving, striving, working our way to whatever concept of the divine that we have. But that is totally antithetical to the announcement of Jesus. The announcement of Jesus is that in Him, God has drawn near. Before we got our act together, before we got our doubts answered, before we got our theology perfectly straight, while we were still sinners, the Scriptures say, Christ died for us. In other words, He moved first before we did anything, that God has drawn near. That is the fundamental difference between the gospel of Christ and the religious, uh, even some versions of Christianity, the religious impulse in all of us. It's not to climb, it's that he's come close. Now, what that means then is that when Jesus walked the earth, his antagonism towards religion was most expressed towards the guardians of the religious status quo. And one of the very ironic things when you read the actual words and message of Jesus, is that those are the folks he would argue with all the time. The sinners, the broken people, the the folks that just had nothing together, who were the misfits and the outcasts, those folks loved him. But he'd get into all these arguments with religious people. And and very, very often it was over who he ate with, because eating with somebody in the first century meant you approved of them or you accepted them. So in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is in trouble Shockingly, because he's just invited a hated tax collector who was considered the most unclean of unclean people in Jewish culture to be one of his disciples, and this tax collector throws a party and invites Jesus. All right, so that's the equivalent of like Hugh Hefner throwing a party at the Playboy Mansion and inviting Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus would say, Yeah, I'll be there. Seriously, you don't think he would be there? This is the kind of party he's invited to. All right, totally scandalous. And now, guys, that doesn't mean you would go, because Jesus was sinless, all right? Now, (laughs) some of the guys are like, yeah, Jesus would go, all right. What would Jesus do? He'd go, okay. (laughs) No, there's some differences. Now, so Jesus is getting in trouble in verse 12, and this is his response. Notice how he defends himself. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Why would I hang around healthy people if I'm a doctor? I only hang around sick people. He says, but go and learn what this means. And then he quotes a passage from Hosea. What is it? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, in that one sentence is Jesus' philosophy of how he treated people. And what we want to do today is unpack that one sentence, because he uses it lots of other places. Go to Matthew chapter 12. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, did God demand sacrifice in the Old Testament? Yes, lots of them. So there's some sort of twist we're missing because on the face of it, it's like, well, no, no, you did demand sacrifice and you demanded mercy. But when Jesus is in trouble for eating with people that were like the unsavory folks, he defends his ministry by saying, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Go, he does this with the Sabbath. You, we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 12, verse 7. He's in trouble for plucking some grain on the Sabbath. And he says, if you had known what these words mean, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So very obviously, this was a, a, a way that Jesus understood his ministry. And what I want to do is I want to blow kind of that sentence up and then come back to it at the end. Go to Luke chapter 10. Now, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you are new to the Bible, one of the things that we try to do on a regular basis for people who think they know the Bible is to take a Bible story we all think we know, convince ourselves we don't really know it the way Jesus intended it, and then talk about how somebody in the first century would have heard it. Sometimes, and you'll be shocked to find this out, that the American church can really water down or domesticate some of the really radical teachings of Jesus. I know that's shocking. And so what we want to do, and, and, and it takes a lot of hard work to do this, is actually put ears on that would have been equivalent to the ears through which people would have been hearing these words of Jesus in the first century. But that means for you, we'll have about 15 minutes of very painful background. All right? So if, if you're new and you're lost completely. First of all, you're in good company. And secondly, um, uh, relevance is probably 20 minutes from this point, all right? <laughs> now, Luke chapter 10, Jesus is in trouble again. I love it. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus or stood up to use the restroom, either way. Now, an expert in the law was somebody who specialized in the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. You'd memorize them, you'd study them, you'd, you'd parse them, you'd apply them. Like, this is a scholar in the first century, a really esteemed religious authority. He stands up to test Jesus, and he asks a very Jewish question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life in the Bible doesn't mean life in heaven. It means the kind of life that is that will be had in the age to come. So he, the guy's not asking Jesus, hey Jesus, what do I have to do so that my sins are forgiven and I get to heaven? What he's saying instead is, in a very Jewish way, hey Jesus, how do I share in the life that is coming in the new age? Not the new age that's bad, but in the age that's coming that's new. Just to clarify. Now, I know random, thank you, thank you. This young lady's going... Give me an A, give me a D, give me a D, yes. Now, <laughs> on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, Jesus has asked 300 questions directly. He answers three of them directly, right? The rest he answers with a question. So, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's in the law? How do you read it? Teacher of the law, expert in minutia. The guy answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now, 
to understand that, you have to understand there was a debate, and this is where this begins, the 15 minutes of pain. There was a debate in the first century over what ranking the commandments were to be placed in. If two commandments contradicted each other, which one should be followed and which one ignored? So the command, do no work on the Sabbath. Okay, there's a command. But you also had a command to help other people in need. Now sometimes to help them would require working on the Sabbath. So the Jews argued over which commands were heavier, more important, and which commands were lighter, less important. When the man asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus flips the question and says, okay, well, how would you order the commandments? See, we don't get that in English, but that's what he's doing to the original audience. When he says, how do you read the law? How do you understand it? He's asking, okay, what, what like order do you put the commandments in? Now, pain. Rabbi Shammai in the first century, they both, both rabbinical schools believed that loving God was the number one commandment. They disagreed over what was number two. Rabbi Shammai believed out of Leviticus, be holy because I am holy, was commandment number two. Rabbi Hillel believed that love your neighbor as yourself was the second most important commandment. Okay? The teacher in the law, when asked by Jesus, okay, how do you rank them? Says, I'm with Hillel. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives the same answer, by the way, in the book of Matthew when he's asked for his take on them. Jesus says, agreed, do this and you will live. Now, if you are the expert in the law trying to trap Jesus in saying something heretical. Have you succeeded? No! He flipped it on you. Hey, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Instead of answering, Jesus says, well, how do you rank the commandments? Love God, love neighbor. Jesus said, sweet. <laughs> Have you trapped Jesus? No! So he asks so there was a debate about how we inherit eternal life. Then there was a debate about ordering the commandments. Then the guy realizes Jesus sides with Hillel, right? Love God, then love neighbors, more important. So then he asks a very Jewish third question because he hasn't really trapped him yet. If loving your neighbor is the second most important commandment, what's the natural question? Who's my neighbor? Is it just my physical neighbor? The person across the village? A person in another village? Somebody who's not Jewish? Somebody who's Roman? So, shockingly, there were all of these debates about how far neighbor applied. Go to Leviticus 19. Keep your finger in Luke. We're going to come back. Go to the wonderfully painful book of Leviticus. It's not painful because it is painful. It's painful because we're so far from the cultural underpinnings that make it sensible that we read it and go, really? Really, I have to mold? Really? All right, Leviticus, uh, what did I say, 19? You guys okay? Sure. I can tell. Everyone's going, okay, relevance, 10 minutes. So come on, come on, relevance. All right, go to 19, uh, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18. Now, big debate, who's my neighbor? The predominant thinking of the day that was my neighbor, if you were Jewish, my neighbor was somebody who was Jewish. And that was as far as neighbor went. And they would point to passages like this. 
Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against, against anyone among what? Your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So how would you naturally understand neighbor in that passage? Your people, right? Do not bear a grudge against your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, well, then, then the neighbor must be the your people that was just referred to, right? So the natural thinking of the day was, who is my neighbor? Well, it's just fellow Jews. But then there were people that thought, no, no, only real, true Jews. People who were clean and people who loved God and people who weren't poor and people that weren't disformed. And they started qualifying all of this. So Jesus steps right into middle, to the middle of this debate. How do I inherit eternal life? How do you rank the commandments? Love God, love neighbor. Excellent. He didn't trap him yet. So seeking to justify himself, who is my neighbor? The natural answer would have been Jews, fellow Jews, people just like you. And I know it's shocking, but today religious people fall into the same trap. Would you agree? I just love those that believe like me, act like me, look like me, talk like me, are clean like me. And so Jesus in answer to his question, tells this story. Go back to Luke, chapter 10. Are you ready? Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when, they, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of all of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the setting. There was a 17-mile road. Jerusalem was up on a hill about 2,000 plus um, feet above sea level. Jericho was down 200, or no, like 2,000 feet above sea level. Jericho was down like 200 feet below sea level. And it was this windy, curvy, 17-mile road. Road to Hana, anybody in Maui? You ever? Okay, it's like that. I mean, it was like sheer rock face on one side and like a valley that you would fall down and die in on the other. And robbers loved that road because it was curvy and there were all kinds of places for ambushes. But secondly, a lot of rich people traveled on it. Jericho was the place where a lot of the people serving at the temple in Jerusalem would go and have their homes and they would travel to and fro, uh, to and fro, to and fro, uh, be, is that right? I was like, to and from? I guess that would work too. Now, hello English, nice to meet you. Now, they would travel the road back and forth from Jericho to Jerusalem. And, and this this windy road was perfect for ambushes. So Jesus, it's like Jesus just saying, hey, a car broke down in the 405. Right? You know what? You got it. You don't have to say anything more than that. You got it. So when he says there was a man who uh, was ambushed on this, it was called the road of blood because it was so brutal. Uh, a man was ambushed and he was naked, beaten, bloody, and half dead. Now in Greek, the word half dead means half dead. In other words, Totally unconscious. There's no way apart from getting close to him that you would know whether or not he's even alive. In those days, the only ways you could really tell the ethnicity of somebody was how they talked or what they wore. And so here's a man who can't speak and here's a man who doesn't have clothes on, right? Except for probably his undergarments. There was no way to tell. 
Now that becomes really important in the story because now we meet three people who are walking the same path who encounter this guy. Now, what we do in the American church with the parable of the Good Samaritan is make it about like AAA road service, right? Somebody breaks down, you help them. That is the cheesiest, clichédest, shallowest possible understanding of the story. What Jesus does is so much more profound than that. That's the reason for all the work we're going to do. If I were to stand before the NAACP and tell the story of the good Ku Klux Klanmen, how'd that go over? Or, or I'm, uh, I'm, I'm speaking to Hamas, the terrorist, Palestinian terrorist organization, and I'm going to tell the story about the good Jewish settler. Or I'm at the 911 big memorial service, right? The 911 big memorial service, not 911, 911 big memorial service for, for people, and I'm going to tell the story of the good terrorist. I mean, you just go, what Jesus is about to do, it was so unbelievable to the audience of his day. The fact that we've reduced his little parable to, be, to being nice just misses it completely. So we got a little more work to do. There's a man beaten, half dead, by the side of the road. Jesus continues. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Now, the traditional understanding of the story was, man, those, I can't believe people like that would just pass by someone so obviously in need. That isn't the point Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making is he's picking on two groups that had a religious obligation to pass by. He is pointing out two groups who were commanded in the Old Testament not to come into contact with dead bodies. Hold your finger here. Back to Leviticus. Woo! Leviticus. Or you can just wait for it on the screen. Leviticus. <laughs> Fewer people are turning this time. Leviticus 21. Okay, now, priests were a division of a group called Levites. Okay, so Levites were descendants of Aaron. In the Old Testament, was a partner of Moses. These were the people that administrated the sacrificial system for Israel. So you have priests and Levites, same class. The requirements for priests, though, were a little bit higher. And in the Old Testament, you get all these rules given to priests because they were in the presence of God's holiness. They had to like offer the sacrifices in certain kind of ways. Above all, they were required to maintain something called Ritual purity. It didn't mean that they were pure or not sinners. It meant that they had to stay away from coming into contact with anything that would somehow make them unclean. So here in Leviticus 21 is, are the rules concerning dead bodies. Speak to the priests, verse 1, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. Except for a close relative, such as a mother, father, son, daughter, brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since he has no husband, for her he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. There were four ways you could enter into defilement as a priest. Bless you, bless you. 
top of the list was coming into contact with a dead body. The priest is walking along the road and he can't tell if the person's dead. What does his law tell him? Don't come into contact with it. In fact, there were some who taught that even if your shadow, I'm not making this up, even if your shadow came across and touched, your shadow fell across somebody who was dead, you were unclean. And once you were unclean, here's the process of becoming clean for a priest. You had to march back up to the temple. You had to wait seven days. You had to reduce a red heifer, we all have those, to ashes and participate in ceremonial washing. It was expensive and inconvenient. Jesus' point wasn't the priest and the Levite were too busy to walk by the dude. It was that they were convinced that was obedience to God was to walk by the dude. Now, there's a little twist, one more layer of this. When, when Jesus says they're coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it means that these were priests that had just served their two-week duty up at the temple. You didn't get paid for this, but what you received was a portion of the offerings that were given at the temple. So if you brought 10% of your grain to the temple, a tithe, the priests would get 10% of that 10%. Are you with me on this? So you'd be trucking back home with a donkey full of the food that you were going to use now to feed your family. And if we had time, in Leviticus 22, there are all these rules about how you can't eat the food unless you're clean. So think about the priest, right? I've served two weeks up there, eager to back down and see my family. I've got a whole host of sacrifices. These were given to God, but they're for me to provide my family. If I come into contact, even if I get close enough to see if the guy's dead, because remember, he's half dead, I can't, I don't know. If I get close enough, my shadow will fall across him, then I'm defiled. I can't eat, nor can my family eat all the stuff I've got on my donkey, and I have to go back, spend seven more days up there, go to the East Gate every morning, be washed twice, and spend a bunch of money to reduce a red heifer to ashes. Jesus' point is that the priest and the Levite, in their understanding, were required to walk by as an act of obedience to God. Are you with me on this? Have we made this point enough? Back to Luke. There were three kinds of people who served in the temple. There were priests, there were Levites, and then there were Jewish laymen what they were called. Just regular folks who weren't priests or Levites, but would go and like do the mundane work of the temple. If you're Jewish and you're hearing Jesus tell the story, you think you know what's coming next. Okay, well, the priest, the Levite came. Who's the third person going to be coming down? Jewish layman. Of course, Jesus loves the peasant. So, of course, he's going to have a Jewish layman be the hero. But that's not what Jesus does. The third person in Jesus' story is someone called a Samaritan. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Interesting, oil and wine were what the priest and the Levite would use in their sacrifices. Interesting. 
he thought to himself. Then he, put a man on, <laughs> then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is a two days wage, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Now, <laughs> there was nobody. Remember, who's Jesus talking to? An expert in the law. There is nobody who experts in the law hated more than Samaritans. A Samaritan was a Jewish person who hundreds of years before, when the rest of Israel was in exile, intermarried with the non-Jewish people around them. The Jews called them half-breeds. The Samaritans were so offended by the Jews that they actually taught that Jerusalem was a false temple and that the real temple was in a different mountain. There was tons of animosity between these two groups. Let's fire up the PowerPoint. Have you guys heard of this PowerPoint thing? It's amazing. You can put words on screens. It's phenomenal. So this is a document written 200 years before Jesus' birth. Uh, the Samaritans lived in a place called Sachem. This is a Jewish writer. There are two nations that my soul detests. And the third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, that's nation number one, and the Philistines, that's nation number two. And the people that are not a nation, the stupid people living at Shechem. Okay? Flattering, would you say? Not so much. Next. So this is from the Mishnah. The Mishnah declares, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the bread or that eats the flesh of swine. Pigs were the most unclean animal to the Jewish mind. So the idea was if you shared a meal with a Samaritan, it was like eating the flesh of a pig. Like totally, totally defiling. Next. One scholar says it this way, the Samaritans were publicly cursed in synagogues. Okay, so you'd have a church service and we're going to have a time of public cursing. Okay, sound good? We're going to add that to our little like liturgy here. We'll just add a time of public cursing. All right, so Michigan will curse. We'll... The Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues and a, peti a petition was offered up daily praying to God that the Samaritans would not be participants in eternal life. A little animosity? In fact, there was one point where the, the Jews went over to the Samaritans' mountain and destroyed their temple. When Jesus was 12, the Samaritans, on the night of Passover, okay, one of the holiest nights in the Jewish calendar, went over and scattered dead human bones in the Jewish temple. Like, there was nothing you could have done that was more scandalous to them. So these guys hated each other. So, Jesus, you expect a priest, check. Levite, check. Well, of course, it's just going to be a Jewish layperson. Of course. He introduces a Samaritan, the man that the teacher of the law would have hated the most. And then he has the Samaritan show mercy to the fellow. And it's fascinating because in Greek, there are all of these allusions to like messianic mercy. 
Like the, 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 the Samaritan bound up his wounds, which was a way that the Messiah was going to do it with oil and wine. These were like temple things. I mean, there's all this like underpinning where Jesus is kind of jabbing at these folks. And then notice what Jesus does. Where's my Bible? Notice what was the question that prompted this little story? Who is my neighbor? Jesus instead asked this question. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, in Greek, there are three easy answers. Priest, Levite, Samaritan. Notice that the teacher in the law cannot even say the word Samaritan. Instead, he takes the long way and says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus, <laughs> go and do likewise. Let me tell you a story about the good Taliban pedophile. Imitate him. What? I mean, that's what Jesus has done. You don't understand it. This isn't a story about being nice to people in need. He was confronting the teacher of the law who wanted, give me the boundaries of neighbor love. How far do I have to go? How wide does this have to be? And instead he tells a story about a hated Samaritan helping a man in need and says, imitate him. That's how you be a neighbor. So when the guy asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus responds with, who's your enemy? That person's your neighbor. And let me tell you a story about your enemy showing neighbor love to somebody in need. You go imitate them. What? Remember, there were two schools of thought. One school said, love God and stay pure. Stay holy. Another school said, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus looks at people like that and says, Go learn what it means when Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have a little girl. Her name is Hannah. She's five years old. Suppose I were to give her, and play with me on this part, a magic white dress that would grow with her as she grew so that it would be the dress she would wear on her wedding day. Okay? It was magic and that it grew with her and fit her perfectly at whatever age she was, and that the goal of the dress was to stay clean for her wedding day. There was one rule I gave her. Keep the dress clean. Because although it was magic, if you got it dirty, it could never be washed. Play with me on this. The 9 o'clock service was not impressed. <laughs> at this point in the story either. Suppose my little girl says... Can I wear it to school? Absolutely, honey. What's the one rule? Keep it clean. Suppose as she's walking to school, she has a friend that she has seen who's fallen off a bike and is laying crying and hurt in the mud. She's got her white dress on. Do I help my friend and get dirty? Or do I ignore my friend and stay clean? Jesus answers this question quite clearly. If you ever have to pick between religious sacrificing and mercy, choose mercy. 
If you ever have to pick between staying clean or getting dirty, get dirty. In the American church today, there are groups of people, and I'm generalizing, who we've declared to be unclean. And so instead of diving in, for our purity's sake, we say, we stand apart. One such community, of course, is the gay and lesbian community. I, for whatever reason, keep coming into contact with folks who are wrestling on the big spectrum of sexuality. Some of them think, hey, (laughs) anything goes. Others of them are wrestling. Others of them are saying, yes, I've got freedom. Others of them are saying, I don't even know what my sexual orientation is. I mean, every, every conceivable opinion you could have, I come across. What is the traditional response of the church to those kinds of folks? Stay away. You get dirty. Or, if I do engage with you, I have to make sure you know I don't approve first. Then we can talk. As long as you know I don't approve, okay. Do you think Jesus led with that? Did he? A woman caught in the very act of adultery. In the very act, not going to, not coming from. In the act, drug before Jesus. What's Jesus say? All right, religious folks, anyone who's pure enough to judge her, go for it. Oh, no? Really? I'm the only one? Go and sin no more. A woman who's had five husbands in John chapter 4. The sinful woman that anoints Jesus' feet, she doesn't even ask for forgiveness, and he leads with, your sins are forgiven. So which does Jesus think is more important? To stay separate and pure or to get dirty to love your neighbor? Now, what I'm not saying is, hey, it's totally cool to go participate in any old thing just for the sake of loving neighbors. No, no, that's not what we're saying. Right? I'm not going to have a ministry over in the exotic nightclub, right? Because for me, that wouldn't be a helpful thing. Many jokes that just went through my head. (laughs) All appropriately edited for the sake of you. Now, we're not talking about that, but isn't there this sense in the Christian community that like, oh, I hear swearing. I I gotta stay away. Oh, no, 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 that person's messy. That person's an alcoholic. That person's screwed up. That person's divorced. That person is this, 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 this. And somehow we think we've gotta stand apart. We don't want to dive in. We don't want to get dirty and help them. I've never had to convince one person ever they're a sinner. If I just stand and preach at them, well, then they'll argue with me. But if you just ask questions and show interest without an agenda, I found that everybody understands the darkness in their own heart. Maybe not the extent, maybe not the degree, maybe not the origin. But nobody sits before us these days boasting that they've got it all together. And yet the church just continually feels this need to stand apart. I mean, I love what Paul says. He's talking about church discipline in the church. He says, I judge those people in the church. I don't judge those outside the church. So here's a novel idea. Let's treat Christians like Christians and non-Christians like non-Christians. How about that? 
And how did Jesus treat people who were prostitutes, tax collectors, sinful, messy, screw-ups? He got dirty. He didn't sin. He got dirty. How did he get dirty? He'd show up at their parties. He'd listen to their problems. There was an unclean woman that interrupted Jesus as Jesus was on the way to raise a kid from the dead. And the gospel says he sat and he listened as this woman recounted her whole medical history. The Bible says that he listened to her whole story. You can imagine the dude whose kid just died is going, can she make an appointment? (laughs) Right? We got some rising from the dead to do. But he stops and he listens. Jesus got messy. Now, here's why this matters to us. If you're minorly uncomfortable with this conversation, good, me too. Jesus hates religion when religion is used as an excuse to not love. The priests and the Levites believed they were under religious obligation to avoid. Well, we think the same thing. In the name of God, I will avoid. I will ostracize. I will marginalize. I will judge. I will cast aspersions upon. I will accuse in the name of my God. And Jesus comes along saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You got a sheet, a little brown piece of paper, like this. This is Tim Keller's announcements. Yours is blank. What is this story about, do you think? The man who wants to justify himself asks a theological who is my neighbor question, and instead Jesus confronts him with his enemy to the point where the hero of the story is somebody that that the expert in the law cannot even say. Do you have anybody in your life whose name you can't say? My ex? Right? Don't Don't we find that in culture? Like you just quit talking about them using their name. Jesus, to the man who says, who's my neighbor, Jesus just says, who do you hate? There's your neighbor. And isn't the religious impulse to love those people who are just like us, right? Who just believe like us and live like us. And and Jesus just simply says, no, 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 no. In fact, other places he'll say, hey, if you just love those people who love you, what credit's that? Like pagans can do that. You don't get credit for that. No, no, no. You're to love your, even your enemy. So it's no question when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He'd tell a story about an enemy who shows neighbor love and then command the religious guy to imitate him. So if Jesus were telling the story to us, who would he use instead of the Samaritan? We want to take this sheet of paper and we want to ask the question, blank is my neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Like, who would Jesus, like, let's say, hypothetically, illegal aliens. Maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a whole group. The people on the other side of the, like, fast food, like, speaker system who can't understand English, and you just think, learn English, because this is my country, doggone it. I want to order a quesadilla without you messing that up. (laughs) Right? I mean, 
The Good Samaritan isn't a story about being nice. The Good Samaritan is a story about hatred and about bigotry and about racism. It's a story about being confronted with God's radical love for us in such a way that we would never dare inhibit it given to another. So who's my neighbor? Well, who's your enemy? So write it down. The person that betrayed you. The person that stabbed you in the back. The business deal that went south. Your ex. Your former. Those people. See, Jesus wants to save us from hate. Jesus wants to save us from the, being the kind of people that just love people who are like us. That's why I don't like this story. If it were just a story about being nice, you'd say, okay, no problem. Great, I'll be nice. But it goes so much deeper than that. Who would he say for you? Are you guys writing? My last name is spelled E-R-R-E. On my sheet are things like Michigan Wolverines. <laughs> no. I asked my wife a while back, I'm like, who do, you, who do I hate? Ask your spouse, right? They'll know. Here's her line. Anybody who criticizes you, you mean like you're doing right now? You mean like that? <laughs> and she was right. So there are these there are these people I just, and so God says, hey, what kind of love characterizes my kingdom? It's the kind of love a Samaritan would have for somebody who was Jewish. And it's the kind of love that a Jewish man or woman should have for someone who's Samaritan. And it's the kind of love that God has ultimately for us. So, you writing? Are you writing? Because we'll never get free from this stuff until you actually name the person or the group. So uh, what we want to do this morning is we want to take those sheets of paper and we want to fill them out. Blank is my neighbor and fill out the blank. Who is that? Who is that for you? And then take the sheet. And if there's a part of you that goes, there's no way I could love that person or those people Apart from God, yes. That's exactly how we ought to be feeling. Because this isn't natural to us. All right, so shut your eyes for a moment if you would. I just asked you to be writing and now you're shutting your eyes. I know the, I know the contradiction. And can we just sit a moment in this? And so, God, we pray uh, in these moments you would remind us that we're loved and that um, the way you love us, God, is the only basis out of which we can try to grasp hold of the kind of love you invite us into towards each other. And so, God, we confess we're people that just want to love the people just like us. How far does neighbor go? And Lord, you answer it in just such astounding ways. We're just confronted with the reality of our own hearts, of our own bias, our own racism, our own prejudice, our own hatred. And God, we desire to be people who are set free. 
So Lord, have mercy on us this morning as we just name these people, as we name these groups of people. Set us free, God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.